Welcome to the Becoming Your Best podcast. We're here to provide you and your team with the resources, tools, and content to achieve your greatest potential. For those interested in additional resources or services, such as the weekly planners, online planners for Chrome or Outlook, keynotes, live training, coaching, or certification, you can visit our website at becomingyourbest.com. Now, when you listen to an episode that resonates with you, we invite you to share it with your family, friends, and team members so that they can experience the same type of motivation and results in their lives. Also, if you haven't already subscribed, please hit the subscribe button. It works on Apple, Stitcher, Google, or whatever platform you're using so that you can get a new podcast reminder each week. Now sit back, let's get started, and we hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome to all of our Becoming Your Best listeners, wherever you may be in the world today. This is your host, Steve Schallenberger, and we have a special guest with us today. He is a dear friend. I love this guy. He's amazing. He's written several books that I'm going to tell you about in a few moments, but I'm going to start off this podcast a little different because I'm going to read one of the pages in the book. It's how he started out one of the books. He told a story, actually. So uh, hang with me on this. It's one page. You're going to, I think, really get into it. Once upon a time, there was a man who had destroyed his life by the age of 32. And although what so many people claim is true, that you can measure a person's character by how he responds when the chips are down and his back is against the wall, there was nothing in this man's life to suggest he was even remotely prepared to overcome the challenges before him. But you never know what somebody can accomplish if he or she wants it badly enough. And on June 10th, 1996, this individual stood motionless in a prison cell, a cell indistinguishable from so many others that had served as his home for more than six years, devastated over the recent news that his father had died. He looked deeply into the eyes that glared at him through the scarred stainless steel mirror in his tomb. Through the initial scrawl by an unknown tenant before him, he saw the reflection of an unemployed high school dropout and a three-time loser had spent his entire adult life in the hopeless state of despair. For as long as he could remember, he had known only prison, poverty, and struggle. He had no money, no hope, and by all accounts, no future. And he had never held a steady job or owned a home, and he had abandoned his three-year-old son. He had never done an honorable thing in his life. And as he stared at his pathetic countenance, grieving over his dead father, the son he had left behind, and the life he had essentially wasted, he considered the words of Ralph Waldo Emerson, one of my favorite authors, poets, and contributors of literature, who he had just discovered, who wrote this, we become what we think about all day long. Well, I'd like to just fast forward a little bit and tell you a little bit more about the ending of this story. In 2003, our guest walked out of a homeless shelter after serving 13 years in prison, a ninth grade dropout, a three-time convicted felon. He found himself broke and unable to gain employment. And in just five short years, 
He grew his company from zero to $20 million a year and was selected by Inc. Magazine as one of the fastest growing privately held companies in America. Weldon Long, our wonderful guest, my friend, has since trained thousands of sales reps, generated over $40 million across the six companies, and over $480 million for his clients, which include Fortune 500 companies like FedEx, Home Depot, Wells Fargo, and Farmers Insurance. He's also a New York Times bestselling author of The Power of Consistency, Consistency, Selling, and Upside Fear. Those are three different books. He's one of the most sought-after speakers. He and I have had a great opportunity to work together. Welcome, Weldon Long. Thank you, Mr. Schallenberger. That is uh, quite the the warm introduction, the reception, and it's interesting. You read those words there in the forward of the power of consistency. I wrote those 11 or 12 years ago, and I don't think I've looked at them since then. Just a powerful reminder of how bad it really, really was at that point. Yeah, and how far you have come and really how far a person can come when they get some things right. And so uh, I'm so excited to have you, Weldon. Uh, He and I have had the opportunity to associate with a group called the EGIA, Electric Gas Industries Association. Weldon is the voice of EGIA, really. Uh, It's one of the most successful and influential associations in the United States and North America, really focuses on contractors. They provide such great resources, of which Weldon is one of them, uh, and they use so much of this, so he's influenced a lot of people. Well, Weldon, let's get right into this. And uh, let's start out, if you don't mind, by telling our listeners, I've shared some of your background, but if you don't mind, if you could share whatever you think is relevant and any turning points and what's had a significant impact on you, and then we're going to just run it forward and pick Weldon's mind and get advice and thoughts of something that we can gain a thought or uh, two or three or four but maybe something you could share with others as well. So let's start off with that question. Yeah, I'm just really so pleased to be here. I think the world of you and I just enjoy hanging out with you and chatting with you so much, you know, kind of as you outlined in the introduction there of the power of consistency, I really spent 25 years of my life, prison, poverty, destruction. I was a ninth grade high school dropout, as you mentioned, ended up running the streets as a teenager and not really involved in any criminal trouble at that time, just kind of a punk and an irresponsible, you know, thug. And at 23 years old, I pulled a gun on a guy and I went to prison for four and a half years. I paroled. I was out about two years and went back to prison a second time for a couple of years and then got out the second time at 30 years old and then went back at 32 years old for seven years. So I did a total of 13 years starting in 1987 until 2003, that roughly 16, 17 year span, I did 13 years. And so obviously a very, very destructive life. And as you kind of alluded to uh, in the portion of the book you were reading in June of 1996, I was in federal prison. I had just, I had completed six years already in the state and I was just starting seven years in the federal prison system. And my father died on June 10th of 1996. And when my father died, at the time, my son was three years old. I had fathered him when I was out on parole. And so I'd abandoned him and went, went to prison, went back to prison. When my father died, it's kind of that moment of clarity. And it's really even hard to describe. You know, we talk about people having that kind of come to Jesus moment, epiphany, 
you know, a moment of clarity, whatever you want to call it. And for the first time at 32 years old, and I saw myself in that mirror, that scarred stainless steel mirror in my prison cell, for some reason, Steve, my, the blinders came off and I saw myself what I really was. And so I made a decision. I was going to change the course of my life and I was very desperate to do so. But once I made that decision, (laughs) it's like, what do you do now? Right. Where do you start turning the Titanic of this life around? I still had seven years to do in prison and uh, with no education, not really many resources. And so I came up with the bright idea that I was going to study what successful people did. And I was going to start doing that. And so I started reading books. And from there, I began to understand the power of the prosperity mindset and changing my habitual thinking, adopting a set of characteristics in my life based on honor, integrity, faith, fidelity, et cetera, much of the stuff that you've taught over the course of your career. And seven years later, I walked out of prison, a different man, and I began creating the life of my dreams. And so, you know, we can kind of get into the specifics about some of my philosophies and teachings and things I've learned, but really that's kind of how the the story goes. It's hard to believe I walked out of prison to a homeless shelter 20 years ago, and my life today is uh, just absolutely unbelievable. You know, that should give hope and encouragement to every single person that's listening and and people that are trying to get ahead. So thank you for sharing that. One of the books uh, that Weldon wrote is called The Upside of Fear. I love this book, uh, Weldon. It is a spellbinder gripper, had me on the edge of my seat. <laughs> like it really just kind of goes through all of it, doesn't it? I mean, that's pretty it- inspiring. It really does. That book starts out in uh, 1987. The first chapter is my night out with Elliot. And Elliot was a young man I picked up hitchhiking. And he and I got the bright idea to commit a robbery together under the influence of a lot of drugs and alcohol. And that's kind of where the story started. You know, it's funny, that book, my wife always tells people, if you're going to start reading it, you have to agree to finish it because you're going to hate me the first half. (laughs) You're going to absolutely hate me the first half because how can somebody be so hard headed? And so dense that they can't learn their lesson because I was in and out and in and out. But the second half of the book, you'll love me because I start start getting some sense about me and start learning some things and start putting those things to work in my life. And, and of course, it made a huge difference. I'll say it's really great. I love it. As you think back and, and where you are today, what are some of the things that you're most proud of? And then once we're done with that question, let's get back and talk about what you think are some of the most important things that allowed you to go through that transformation? I think the thing I'm most proud about now is, you know, is my family. My son, when I was writing about that portion of the prison time you were reading there, my son was three years old and he was 10 when I got out and I got custody of him and was able to raise him. And I'll never forget when he was 18 years old, took him off to college. I live in Colorado and he was just going to school up in Denver. So it was just a couple hours away. We went to the dorm where he was going to be living that first semester, and we walked in, and this lady checked his name off of a list, and she turned to my son, and she said, uh, a mandatory housing meeting, 3 o'clock. And I said, yes, ma'am, I'll I'll be there. She said, no, you won't. At 3 o'clock, he's a grown man. And all of a sudden, it hit me that this little boy that was three years old when I kind of came to my senses, he was 10 years old when I got out and, and raised him, you know, here he was starting his life. That afternoon, just before I was leaving, I gave him a big hug and I told him, I said, son, I said, my greatest dream for you is that one day you will have a son that you love in the same way that I love you, because that's the only way you're ever going to know what it feels like to be your dad. And I put my hands in on his shoulders and I said, son, 
I said, words cannot even describe how much I love you and how proud I am of the man that you've become. And my 18-year-old son looks at me dead in the eye, reaches up, and he takes my hands off of his shoulders. He puts them down by my side, and he puts his hands on my shoulders. And my 18-year-old son looks me dead in the eye and says, no, Dad, I'm proud of the man you finally became. And that moment with my son was beyond uh, perfection, and I think it probably symbolizes so much of the the struggle and what I was trying to reach, the point I was trying to reach to have that kind of life and that kind of relationship with my son. And so I, I think that that's probably the thing I'm most proud of. And it's just so many wonderful things have, have happened over the course of the last 20 years. It's really hard. It's really hard to comprehend sometimes. Sometimes I got to pinch myself. You know, it's funny because people that come into my life now and see me speaking and they hear about the 13 years in prison, they hear about the 25 years of desperation but it's really hard for them to kind of reconcile that with the person that they're seeing in that moment. But it really did happen. And it's, I can remember years ago going to some prisons to do some speaking and some of my staff was along with me. We saw guys in that prison that I knew when we left there, they were like, wow, you really were in prison for 13 years. So uh, yeah, it's been a, it's been a huge transformation, but I'd love to talk about some of the, the common themes that you and I both have learned over the years. And you spent decades teaching that really made the difference in my life. Let's do it. Well, then, uh, what are some of the things that really contributed to your turnaround, the liberation? I'd like to start there, and then I have a question of, well, how do you make that part of your life on a permanent basis? But let's hit the, what are some of the key things, realizations, or insights you had that were most helpful to you? Well, on June 10th of 96, when my father died, and I made that decision, I've got to change my life. I made a simple decision that I was going to be a man my father could have been proud of. And I was going to be the father that my little boy deserved. And I walked out of my cell and I'm walking down the prison tier, you know, I'm on the second tier and I'm looking down at all the guys slamming dominoes and, you know, working out and doing their laundry and cooking their ramen noodles and just looking at my life. Like that's, you know, my life. And there was a broom closet down at the very end of the tier. And in that room was a big box of books. And I was just desperate for something to start reading. I had never been much of a reader at that point. And I started digging through that book and I came across a book written by a dear friend and associate of yours for many years, Dr. Stephen Covey, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. The second half of that book was a pretty deep book for a guy like me, you know, not much of an intellectual, but you know, the, the, the personal habits of success, the private victories really made a lot of sense to me. And I remember reading In the introduction of the seven habits, Dr. Covey said that you can live out of your imagination rather than your past. And that was, that was big news for me because my past was prison and poverty and struggle and difficulty. And now I had this man uh, telling me that I could live out of my imagination. And I had an extremely vivid imagination. A couple of months during that same summer of 96, I then came across a quote from Frederick Nietzsche and Nietzsche said that we attract that which we fear. And then about a month after that, I read in the Bible, Job says, Father, that which I have feared has come upon me. And then Dr. Covey had talked about a book called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. I read that the same summer, and Frankl said, fear may come true. So I kept seeing this these signs that the things I'm afraid of most, I might be attracting into my life. And at first, I thought it was nonsense. You know, why would I attract things in my life I didn't want? But I decided to just to do a little test. So I sat down at the little metal desk in my cell, and I took out a pencil and a sheet of paper, And I wrote down my greatest fears. You know what they were? Living and dying in prison, never being a father to my son, being broken, homeless, and just a total loser. Well, that was a perfect description of my life at the time. And it hit me. 
that somehow all the chaos in my brain was getting out and showing up in my life. So the implications are pretty obvious. I better start thinking about different things. And so I took out another sheet of paper and I wrote out what a perfect life for me would look like. The first thing I wrote down is I'm an awesome father to my son. Well, obviously that wasn't true at the time, but hey, I was living out of my imagination. I'm wealthy beyond my wildest dreams. I have a beautiful home in Colorado. I had all these amazing things. And the last thing I wrote in that list, in fact, was that I'm a man of honor, character, and integrity. Because from Seven Habits, I learned that, that, that you can't compromise the principles of success, the principles of humanity, the principles of honor, faith, and fidelity. You can only break yourself against them. And that's what I had been doing. I realized at 32 years old, well, I haven't compromised the, the principle of integrity. I've just destroyed myself against it. So I took this list. And I put toothpaste in the back four corners and stuck it to the wall on my cell. Then I began to read it every day. And as I began to read more about visualization and meditation and, you know, some, some classic stuff, Napoleon Hill and things like that. And I just started like absorbing myself in this new life. And over the course of the next seven years, I began to read and study and I began to think differently and feel differently and behave differently. And, you know, it comes as no great surprise looking back, but I created better results when I changed what I was doing. That was kind of the genesis of all of it is reading, starting to read books. Oh, fantastic. Oh, there's so many messages in what you just talked about. And as you were talking about that, I was thinking of Mr. Emerson once again, and the quote that we started out with, we become what we think about all day long. And you started thinking differently. You yep. changed your thoughts. From what you feared, I love it. These are great quotes to a whole new way of seeing things. And as I began to understand what was going on, I've, you know, I've not a super, super smartest guy in the room type of thing, but I started uh, getting some books to the library. We we had a system at this facility I was where you could order books from other, it was an interlibrary loan system. So I had access to pretty much any book in the world. It might take a month to get it, but I could eventually get it. And I started reading some of the basic neurology about how, thoughts transmute themselves into into results. And what I learned is that when we have a thought, it shoots a little electrical impulse into a part of our brain called the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus then begins to secrete chemicals that triggers the corresponding emotion. So if I get angry, for example, my brain starts producing epinephrine and adrenaline, and I feel angry. If I feel very loving and happy, my brain starts producing dopamine and endorphins, and I feel loving and happy. So it it was a huge thing for me to understand, wow, my emotions are not just happening in this vacuum. It's a chemical reaction based on what I'm thinking. And then, of course, when you have those emotions, that drives behaviors. Of course, behaviors produce results. And so I began to see this whole self-fulfilling prophecy situation to where the thoughts trigger emotions, emotions trigger behavior, behaviors trigger the results. But what I really figured out that blew my mind, this might be kind of silly to most smart people out there, but it was mind-boggling to me that my behaviors, my actions, and my emotions were a perfect reflection of my thoughts, even if my thought was wrong. In other words, I could believe something that was a lie. I could believe something was inaccurate, and it would still produce very real emotions, very real behaviors, and very real results. And that was like a major, major aha moment. Then I finally understood that's why my thoughts end up creating my life, because the emotions trigger behaviors, behaviors, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. I tell people that's why our mothers always said, be careful what you wish for. Right? People have known this. You know, you don't have to be a neuroscientist. It's, it's kind of funny when the power of consistency came out, it hit number five on the New York Times bestsellers list and number two on Wall Street Journal. And I got a call from a guy who's a PhD. His name's Ed Nottingham. He's a clinical psychologist. He works for FedEx. That's how, how FedEx became a client. And he teaches this stuff, but he's a very 
academic, smart guy, right? He calls me up he, and he said, Mr. Long, I got to tell you, this process that you uh, described in this book, this is the simplest explanation of the neuroscience behind decision-making and results and the principles that are the underpinnings of rationally motive behavior therapy I've ever read in my life. And I was like, there's a name for this stuff. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it, it was just kind of common sense for me. I just kind of figured it out from the street level. Oh, I love it. You know, it is so fun just visiting together with Weldon. And I'm just thinking this, Weldon, uh, and thinking about your transformation. Uh, he and I have talked about becoming your best. And he knows all about the 12 principles of highly successful leaders. But it's worth taking just a moment and talking about the how we discovered this or how we observed it, which is I did 40 years of research on what set apart high-performing individuals from everybody else and interviewed over 175 CEOs around the world and just collected this data. And what we discovered is that nobody was perfect. Yet, we saw 12 things over and over again that they did. And that's what we put in the book, Becoming Your Best, The 12 Principles of Highly Successful Leaders. And so if we were all to sit back today, what we've learned is that people, as they learn about these 12 principles, they too can get the same result as they apply them. I didn't invent the principles. I just observed them and Weldon applied them. He got the result. It's about leading your life with a vision. In other words, what are the thoughts that are in your head? Are they positive or negative? Are they fearful or faithful and hopeful? And the idea of setting annual goals so that what this does, it starts occupying our mind with what the best looks like. And so if you look around and Weldon is an inspirational and really wonderful example of this today. And that is, he's done it. But if you look around, those that have really made a difference, have blessed the world for good, have left it better than they found it, have done this. And so uh, let's keep going on this, Weldon. You may have some reflection on what I just talked about, but then one or two more questions. We're almost the end of this interview. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, obviously the work that you've done over those decades, and it's it's interesting as you were telling me how you you interviewed these 175 CEOs. And first of all, I'm thinking like, how awesome must that have been to talk to 175 really successful people? But you're kind of a modern day Napoleon Hill because that's what he did a hundred years ago is went around and talked to all the successful people and he identified what they had in common. And that was the basis of Think and Grow Rich. And then you've done the same thing, you know, a hundred years later and, and transcribed it and kind of put it into modern day terms and activities. The thing that I've learned is that neuroscientists estimate that we make 30,000 small decisions a day. And a lot of times we think that our life is made up of the big decisions. You know, should I marry this person? Should I buy this house? Should I take that job? And the reality is you're going to have a handful of huge decisions in your whole life. Meanwhile, we're making 30,000 small decisions every single day without even thinking about it. And those are the ones you really got to pay attention to, right? Because, you know, you're going to reach in your brain and pull out a choice or decision 30,000 times a day. You got to be really careful about what you're reaching in and, and pulling out. And I know that, that you're a big proponent in, in your 12 principles and in your new book too, in terms of the, the planning in the organization. And I think that's so critical. The clear vision obviously is critical, right? You got to have an idea where you're going, you know, and, and I like to define when we're working with organizations with people, we kind of divide it into their, 
their financial security, which is their profession, their retirement plans, their financial security, their relationships, which can be spouse, friends, community, and then their health, mental, spiritual, and physical health. And you got to get clarity on what you want in those ideas. But as I often tell people, success is not a knowledge problem. It's an implementation problem. The, the key is then to lay out the, the, the vision where you can see it. And then as you talk about the, the weekly and the annual planning, because if you don't have it there spelled out for you, this is what I'm going to do each day. Like it'll really get away from you. Mm. You know, you get so caught up. I was reading, rereading recently the four disciplines of execution and you get caught up in the whirlwind and you get caught up in the whirlwind and you don't get the, you don't get the main priorities done. And I think that's where the scheduling, the planning so much that you talk about is such a critical part of success. But again, that vision right? That vision to have a uh, clarity. One of my favorite quotes is from another guy I'm sure that you're familiar with, James Allen. James Allen said that dispersion is weakness and concentration is power. Well, when you're doing planning, when you have a vision, you're planning each week how you're going to get there. That is concentration. That's focus. And that's powerful. You know, powerful. The dispersion is, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. Maybe I'll do this, right? That's weakness. And so, so much of the work that you've done over the course of your career goes directly to those those issues, right? Having the vision and having the plan to execute. Thank you, Weldon. Uh, I, you're spot on on that. That is a perfect point. If you don't mind, I'd like to finish up today and let's just talk about the power of consistency. This is Weldon's New York Times bestselling book. Awesome book. If you were to just put it in a nutshell so people can kind of start getting a feel for it. Yep. What's some of the best advice in that book? Well, what I talk to people about is, you know, once you understand the basic concept, as you outlined in the Emerson quote, we become what we think about all day long. Then the question becomes, okay, so how do I do that? How do I create more productive thoughts? And I use a very simple four-letter acronym, F-E-A-R, FEAR, that stands for focus, emotional commitment, action, and responsibility. That's the upside of fear. And so focus is strictly identifying what do you want in those key areas of your life, And what one or two behaviors, if you executed on every single day, would help you get there? And then what limiting beliefs might be holding you back? And that I have a whole chapter in dealing with what are the things I need to do to achieve these things, but what limiting beliefs could be undermining what I'm trying to accomplish? The next step is emotional commitment. It's a simple process of writing it out. It's the vision that you talk about, writing out the vision, and then doing what I call a daily quiet time ritual, which is 10 to 15 minutes a day reviewing the plan. I call it the prosperity plan, but reviewing it and getting deeply emotionally connected to it. And then action, of course, is taking consistent action each day on that plan. And the R is responsibility, personal responsibility, which is, uh, you know, a lot of people are into CYA. I'm into CPA. And CPA is understanding that I cause, permit, or allow everything in my life that happens to happen. And I tell people that the highest form, I believe, of emotional maturity is when you could look at situations that you're angry or hurt about at some person or some situation. And when you can see your role in what happened, that is the essence of emotional maturity. That's personal responsibility. And our lives ultimately are reflection, not of our problems, but of the decisions that we make about our problems. And that ultimately, I look at my life today and, you know, my life, I had a really bad situation 20 years ago, all of itself created by the way, but My life today is not a reflection of that problem, that situation. My life today is a reflection of the decisions I made about my life. Thank you for taking the time on that. And I'm just thinking about this, that we learn and grow. Look where 
the real turning point for Weldon came, it was in reading books. You know, you just don't know which book is going to finally push you over the tipping point where you get it. So, I mean, I love reading and I'm excited about the power of consistency. It just adds to it. It's one of those that can say, oh, wow, man, I get it. Right. <laughs> and it just helps you. So thanks for doing that, uh, that book. Well, it's my pleasure. It's just, you know, as I said, I just hold you in such high regard. And I just uh, appreciate so much the opportunity to chat with you. It's just a real honor and I just always enjoy it. I know we got to see each other a month or so ago in the studio out here in Colorado and just hanging out there for half an hour talking was really a treat. And you're just a really very special man. And I, I appreciate the friendship. Well, thank you. I feel the same way about you. How can people learn about what you're doing? You I think the to- easiest way is our website is weldonlong.com, W-E-L-D-O-N, weldonlong.com. You can check out all the books on Amazon. Of course, I'm on all the social media platforms at Weldon Long. So I'm pretty easy to find, right? Good thing I'm not hiding from the police anymore because I wouldn't be able to hide. (laughs) Uh, You're the best. Well, it's been a delight to have Weldon with us today. I mean, we're honored and love our listeners. What an extraordinary group. They're working on becoming their best. They're really moving the bar up. They're having fun. They love life trying to make a difference. And this has helped us, I think, today to move that up. So thanks, Weldon. We wish you the best. Thank you very much, Mr. Schallenberger. And to our listeners, we wish you the best today and always. Thank you for listening to the Becoming Your Best podcast. If there was something in this podcast that you felt would be helpful for a family member, a friend, or even a coworker, we invite you to share this podcast with them now while you're thinking about it. Also, remember to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Now, for additional resources and tools, such as how to join our monthly peak performance coaching program, or how to get certified as a trainer or coach, or schedule a workshop or keynote, you can visit our website at becomingyourbest.com. We're here to provide you and your team with the resources, tools, and content to achieve your greatest potential. So thank you for listening and have a wonderful day and a great week.